Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done that, who have done just that. They never gave up, no matter what. Many of my guests have survived incredible circumstances that possibly they didn't think they were prepared for. But also, as a result of those circumstances, they have a passion to help others who may be going through something similar. I believe that everybody has a story. Everybody's story is different. Everybody's journey is different. And this show gives my guests the opportunity to share their story and how they have survived and how they not only survived but were able to overcome and to thrive whether it be extreme poverty or abuse or serious depression or type of disease or family issues or any number of things that made their story special. So I'm so glad that Never Ever Give Up Hope gives these people, all of us, an opportunity to share the stories which are now heard in over 140 countries and also, which is so exciting, the subject of hope in Google searches will give you our show never ever give up hope we're number one in google searches so i thank you today for listening for tuning in i also thank my guest i also thank you for your reviews and your feedback and without you listeners we wouldn't have a show so with me today i have Dr. Thomas Caulfield. He kept a secret journal. I'm not sure why it had to be secret. This is something that we will talk to him about. But he kept a journal for two decades. And this journal documented the legendary journey of his deaf son, Christopher. The family's valiant attempts at helping Christopher be the best he could be. Which as parents, it is our job, our duty, and our joy. Now this secret journal was kept by Dr. Caulfield to give to his son as a gift, as a present, at some point in his life. He never imagined that this journal would someday be a tool to help others learn from their experiences and also to face their challenges which is what our show is all about. So I am so thrilled to have Dr. Thomas Caulfield with us today. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And boy, I'm so honored to be talking with you. How cool is that? You, you, you search through Google and you say, I need some hope. <laughs> 
and bam, break the carol show. Yes, but that's a big deal. I, I think that's neat. I think that's really oh, neat. That's good. Okay, I appreciate that. That that you made my day. Let's start at the beginning. When you discovered, All right. you discovered your baby boy was born deaf. Tell yeah. us the emotional side of that, medical side of that, whatever you want to share. Well, you know, um, that's something that startles uh, largely all hearing parents. Maybe first and foremost, Carolyn, for the audience to know, I think sometimes uh, there's a thought pattern that, okay, you know, there's deaf kids that are born and you know, their parents are probably deaf and they kind of know the culture and it'll be okay. Well, it's actually just the opposite. Uh, about 90% of the deaf kids that are born all over the world are born to hearing parents. Really? With, yeah, with no deafness in their family history. They can't trace any markers. The spiral begins pretty quickly where you're, uh, you're pretty lost. When Christopher, our son, was diagnosed, it, it was before what we call in the medical uh, field newborn screening. Uh, we're talking back in uh, 1995-1996 now and you know at that time they're not doing what they do today newborn screening to determine if at birth there is a hearing loss. So we went on for about a year which is really about average for that time period not knowing Christopher was deaf. Oh there's so much going on and you're such a happy parent you count the fingers you count the toes everything's good you go home and and life is great and um, you know about a year into that journey we uh, it's a little bit like Mr. Holland's opus the story for the audience members too that maybe saw the movie you know there's a drop of something and your child doesn't turn mm. So there's a there's the there's the message and then you have to go for a series of tests. I suppose for us after being in quite a state of shock over this, we uh when we had hearing aids put in, um we thought things would improve, but we learned uh, it wasn't necessarily blow after blow. It just it, well it just got worse. There was no hearing at all, meaning no residual hearing nothing that even a hearing aid could latch on to. So yeah, you see a lot of professionals and you travel a bit getting all sorts of opinions, but in the end it, it, it is what it is and it, it was uh, profound deafness, uh, no hearing at all. And your response and your wife's response? Well, you're in shock because you don't know anything about deafness. You wonder a lot of things. There's an awful lot of questions about education, you know, what's available, where are the centers at, do you need to move? Uh, you know, we lucked out, Carol, and it's good your audience hear this, just by simply almost, oh gosh, it's by the grace of God. There's, a, there's an old group of uh, uh, folks called the St. Joseph Institute for the Deaf. They're out of St. Louis. And how cool is this, Carol? This is a bunch of French nuns that came over in the 1800s with the sole, sole objective is to help deaf children, right? Wow. So they have their residential center down in St. Louis, where it kind of comes in as pretty much a miracle in our minds, is all of a sudden in our town in central Illinois, they form a satellite center there uh, in our university town in the middle of the state where the University of Illinois is. And it's literally uh, within the month that we received our diagnosis. So oh they form gosh. our center and we're 
we're right in line. And Christopher happened to be the first student ever at that satellite school for the deaf. And we were so excited because we felt like, uh, you know, uh, they were there to help us. And I'm sure you believe that it was ordained to happen just that way, too. Well, pretty much. I talk about it in a, with a lot of levity in the book. I said, oh, gosh, I was raised a nice Catholic boy. I didn't cause any problems. The nuns are here <laughs> to save me, you know. And uh, the truth was, uh, yeah. I learned very quickly of the dedication with this group or this order of the St. Joseph sisters. You know, they came up from St. Louis, and you know, you're talking to them from a career point of view, Mm -hmm. and honestly, Carol, uh, one of them in particular, the director, was always on site, and she was just kind of warming up into her career in working with the deaf kids, and she had been in it for already 50 years. So, you know, when we get kind of worn out, I'll admit to this, Carol, you know, professionally speaking, I was a college and university administrator for 30-odd years. I don't like to get into the exact number in the 30s. People <laughs> say, God, is he old? You know, so so you get a little tired, you know, and, and it's very stressful. And he, she's kind of looking at me real spry-like and saying, 50. I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> go, go, go. And, you know, so grateful to uh, be working with, kids there and just every day's a joy you know and uh, so uh, yeah that's where our schooling started and it was relentless speech therapy as I talk about in the back cover of the book it was 1500 hours of speech therapy before Christopher was nine years old that's combined in the clinic and what we were able to learn and do uh, in our sessions at home. Before we go further, I'd like to back up a little bit and tell us sure. about, about your degrees and if and sure. how they helped in yeah. the situation. Yeah, another another aid, I suppose. You know, I come from a family of uh, really educated people. It is what it is. I'm the youngest of a family of five. The majority of them happen to have doctorates in their field. We don't toot that. We call PhDs in our house post hole diggers because you get that post hole digger out and you just keep digging in the soil and you just hope it kind of works out, you know. But uh, yes, my earned degrees are in psychology, educational psychology, college student administration, those types of things. But where I really um, was able to put some things together is uh, my work with uh, in the field of educational psychology. I happen to be uh, published in the areas of uh, student retention in college and universities, uh, working with the disenfranchised, those folks that are first-generation college, uh, maybe a lot of poverty in their background, no role models to go to school. Uh, We're kind of switching gears here, but to put it in Christopher's domain, then we're working with uh, the issue of special education. And I didn't know at the time, but we were just warming up to a lot of legal battles that would would commence uh, over how we were going to take care of the education and I uh, you know I don't mean this like a savior of any way in any way shape or form but my wife and I she has professional degrees herself we we knew this would be serious business and uh, we both um, started to work half time in our appointments as instead of full time the other half on each end for her and for me were really front loaded to work with uh, Christopher exclusively my goodness, what a commitment. I commend Well, you for yeah, that. And, and we were lucky, too. Uh, we have a daughter that's four years older than Christopher, and 
She got along really well uh, academically, quite the reader. She was instrumental in Christopher's success in learning how to read and, and read uh, in a timely manner uh, what the audience and Carol, I don't mean to tell you, you're a very educated woman yourself, but uh, what we as hearing people know is, is we learned how to read because of phonetics, meaning we mm-hmm. know all those phonics. We sound out a sound. We do the vowels. We do the consonants. Well, it's totally different for the deaf. They don't have that ability. They're so young and they're still working out speech, much less understanding you know, yes, how to yes. do things phonetically. So it's done in a different manner, and it's pretty rigorous. As I say in the book, uh, it'll probably bring the, the point I'm may try, attempting to make here uh, uh, right, right uh, home is uh, uh, the word ah, just a simple word ah, uh, simple sound ah. It took us 30 days to teach that one sound to Christopher. I'm so glad you said that because that in itself shows strength and tenacity and determination on your part and not getting frustrated. Well, yeah, thank you for saying that. There was a point when we were going at that glacial pace that we wondered if there would be enough time to get it all in. And, you know, let's let's go to, to uh, more jovial topics. If we were to have Christopher, and I'm not trying to solicit you, Carol, you're, you're, you're great, and I, this isn't the intent, but if we were to have Christopher on your show in the future, the audience would be pretty stunned. Uh, they would say, it doesn't sound like that kid was ever deaf, you know. But the work, the work over those long, long, hard years was just, like you say, relentless and in a lot of professionals involved we don't call them in our house we don't call them speech therapists we call them speech terrorists they would never give up they work so hard and these are pretty demanding people i'm telling you and and they saw a lot in christopher i think they saw maybe a bit of a formula where his parents were in on it you know they were willing to work hard he had good family structure. He obviously had a real strong interest in learning. And so, uh, you know, game on. You know, it's kind of like there's a potential for a poster boy here. And uh, it turned out just that way for us. Thank you for, um, for asking about that. Yeah, I think that everyone's story who has gone through something that is unique to them, such as you have, Sure. When you get to midway, I won't say the end of the story, but when you get down the road and you're beginning to realize the, you know, the positive effects that everything you put into whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, no one understands or knows that journey. And to be able to, as you have, to keep that journal and to put that those emotions and those feelings and those fears and the guilt and all the things that you had to go through only you will ever know that in other words no one knows the journey unless someone takes the time to write that and even then you can't possibly understand I appreciate that basically why I love this show so much because people get that opportunity to share the journey not just the outcome which is always positive 
and always but there were many moments that you went through that I'm sure both of you and even your daughter wondered is it worth it maybe touch a little bit on that sure side. well we did and boy that was a really a really a fine question you asked there um, uh, Carol and and let me help too uh, th- there was not a disjointed nature to that question where I didn't understand I don't think you're I think you sold yourself short a little bit on that that was a very prov- provocative question that was really deep and profound and I think your audience was right there with that let's talk a little bit about this concept of gosh you know uh, this uh, Dr. Caulfield he he sounds like a nice guy, but why, why did he keep it a secret for so long? Well, the truth is, it wasn't really my intent. My intent was to just write. And then when Christopher would reach a milestone that I thought was probably where we would reside for a bit, we didn't know. We were just on this journey. Then I wanted to present that to him. I have to tell you, Carol, and I'm glad your audience can hear this as well, and this addresses part of your question. We just kept going in a trajectory where the dude just kept accomplishing all sorts of things. You know, we would go to conferences, he would give speeches, you know, he became quite a basketball player, a Division I basketball recruit. In, at 13 years old, seventh grade, wow. and we're going to major arenas because he's coming in with these guys that are driving to the games, and he has to poor kid. He had to go with his parents, you know. And I talk about this in the book. So while that kept going on, I kept writing. I wish I could say, as an educator and a college administrator, I, I wish I could say there was kind of a, a comforting process. It was therapeutic for me to write. It really wasn't that. It was, gee, this this is just an unbelievable situation we're going through. I'm going to write it all down and present it to Christopher. It's going to be his journal. As time went on and you have ESPN calling you at the house, you know, <laughs> you, you realize, yeah, you realize that um, there's, there, there's a lot of magnitude to this story. Um, quite quite the uh, momentum is building as well on the academic side it obviously was enough to propel him to uh, a very strong Ivy League school Um, and never along the way, this is the beauty of it Carol, never along the way was he kind of one of these kids that thought so much of themselves that you couldn't even talk to him you know, he truthfully if you really want to be painfully honest here and I will he was so left out of things that yeah. he knows that pain. He really does. So, uh, gosh, the best way to explain this, he always wants to include everybody else. So Aww. he has no business, you know, trying to exclude anybody. He knows that pain. So when you know that, you include everybody. That is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And something that... Well, it's people- reflected... It's reflected in his academic work, uh, the book, when I wrote the dedication, you know, I I really said the way it is. The book was dedicated to all those people in life on the outside looking in, wanting to, to be included. And how do you get that message across? Well, we get it across by, you know, um, I asked Christopher to write the forward to the book. And that was a series of paragraphs from his heart that really talk about 
the world. And when you're brought into the world, and this brings into the, the scope of our, our talk today, Carol, the title of the book. The title of the book is Ephatha. And what that means, that's a very old word. It's an Aramaic word. It's 3,000 years old. It means to be opened or to open up. And in our journey, it required us to open up. It required Christopher to open up. It required a lot of people to open up to him. I wish I could say, and your listeners know this too well, and you know it very well, Carol, is not everybody's going to be very much in line with that opening up to your needs and concerns. It can be very painful, as Christopher wrote in the foreword, let's be honest. And I would have just said, I agree with part of this, but given our journey, I never would have thought the second part of this was that true. He said, adults, there's the, the part I didn't know about, and children can be unkind. Now, to calm the listeners, there's no sexual abuse or physical abuse in any part of this book, nor Christopher's life. So it's not like that. It's being excluded from things. As he also put, I didn't set any records being invited to birthday parties growing up. So what, that ha what happens with that then is suddenly your group of friends and acquaintances change. And, you, and this yes. was of great, of great value in our life. And how lucky are we? And I'm not just reframing it to spin it for a positive. But suddenly you're hanging around with the kids whose parents moved to town with him. And he's from Germany. And he can't speak a lick of English. So he's just like Christopher. He's working out the language. Then you got the kid from India. Same type of a situation. You got the kid from across the tracks, you know, who's the poor kid who's excluded because they're, they don't have any money, blah, 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 blah. You got all of the African-American kids on the basketball team. As you go up the ranks in uh, basketball, it is what it is. It's a sport that's clearly dominated by African-Americans, and Christopher is right there with all of those minority kids and helping them every step of the way in things that are not related to basketball. <laughs> Uh, suddenly we're on a like a United Nations tour of all these people that are different from you know the, the line we were supposed to be in with uh, all the kids that were like us that talked like us that acted like us that lived in a neighborhood like ours you know the output of that is you won't have Christopher saying anything negative against minority cultures you won't have Christopher saying anything about negative about anything anybody with any sort of a disability he gets kind of funny about that you know as he puts it disability it's all the possibilities you know that you can have in your life get it going and uh, work hard and he tells his story all the time to people uh, he's been recently hired by Microsoft and Microsoft he writes him a thank you note. who does that when they get hired right <laughs> writes him a thank you note and says thank you for demonstrating to me my friends family colleagues here at cornell out east uh, that you you really understand inclusiveness in the workplace oh my gosh they write back christopher get over it this is how we roll we're, we're great we're, we're we're great because of that 
because of all the different people in life and because someone says you're autistic I'll, by the way I'll bet you you're a pretty pretty good coder you know, in software engineering and that is very true and so it's a smorgasbord of people that really had some hard times growing up and now you know I don't mean to be overly religious or biblical boy I talked about the last Shelby first oh my gosh <laughs> You know, welcome to the mainstream. And uh, it's almost like it's a bit on steroids for you, kid, because you came out uh, cum laude with honors, all this, that and the other. I don't mean in a braggy way, but that hard work and uh, attention to people and being interested in working with people has paid big dividends for him. Well, to begin with, it's not bragging at all. It's reporting. Well, thank you for saying (laughs) that. But I I submit that to the audience and to attend to your, your, your statements is don't give up hope. You know, keep working it. You know, keep working it. Develop mentors. Find people that can help you. There will be people along the way that don't help. And it's sad. You know, I mean, when I Christopher said adults can be unkind, you know, I'm like, who would do that to a deaf kid, you know, not affirm them or help them out? Or, or why would you avoid them? Why wouldn't you invite them over to a sleepover, you know? So uh, anyway, it is what it is. And I asked Christopher this, and it's good the audience hears this, Carol. I said, Christopher, here's a, here's a good question for you. If you didn't have all this hardship in your life, do you, do you think you would have been as accomplished as you started out becoming a new person in your field of... Uh, software engineering and artificial intelligence he said dad no way i mean that is all that discrimination and all those hard times have just caused me to kind of honker down and and really work hard and uh and just be relentless i mean and it goes back to probably that darn speech therapy and what it took to help him learn how to talk uh you know, the, the audience hopefully will get a kick out of this. I imagine when they first hear it, they go, oh, my God. He went to kindergarten, and he came home after the first day of kindergarten. And my wife and I, we were just waiting to see how it went. You know, oh, did, did they make fun of him? Did, did they talk to him? Did they maybe leave him alone? And all the other kids were over here. So we just kind of waited it out. You know, we're camping out for his sentiment. And he says, you guys, I mean, this is him talking, you know. You guys, it was okay. All they do is play. And I was like, oh boy, I've ruined his childhood. My wife, Jennifer, we've ruined his childhood. We spent so much time working on this speech therapy. He's just become this like this turbine that just you just pump information in. He pumps it out. He doesn't have any sense of social skills. It wasn't. It wasn't a problem. He he definitely learned how to play. <laughs> oh, that's but, so cool. But it is, it, and it's not meant as an indictment on our educational system. But it is referencing the point. He worked so hard and front loaded so much before kindergarten that when he got into educational arenas after that, um, it was tough to get him uh, various accommodations, um, Carol, because he was doing so well because he was pushing it so hard through hard work you said about a hundred things there that i'd like to comment on (laughs) sure yeah i kind of ran on there didn't i no that was awesome i was almost in tears at a couple points and i appreciate that well good i'm glad you didn't let that be known because i would have sobbed with you i'm a highly emotional person trust me Oh, and I love emotional people because you really know where they stand. (laughs) Yes, yes. Anyway, one thing that I do want to address that you said that really touched me personally, and I 
I'm addressing it because I know it's going to touch others as well. Sure. When you go through things that are foreign to the average person, like you said, um, having having a, a, a baby boy who was deaf and you were a hearing family. It's something out of the norm. It's out of the ordinary. And people label you. It's, it's a society curse or a blessing, whichever way you want to put it. But when my husband and I en- endured and encountered all the various uh, traumas in our lives, lives what we found and this is what i wanted to key into what you said is that you were ostracized and a lot of that i believe is because people don't want to they don't know what to say for one so they're uncomfortable with it and a lot don't know how to react because they haven't been part and parcel to something like that but the upside is that the people who are now friends and have remained friends for decades are those who are all in that same category as you mentioned they're different they might be regarded initially as outcasts but they're not and this as you were sharing about the group of friends that your son made which unique each one of them whether they were because of their ethnic background or or because of a disability whatever but they were all unique and how much better in the way i look at life and i know many of you will agree with me to be different and have those kind of people in your life who aren't just the same the normals they make up such a it's a camaraderie for one because the differences that we have actually make you very much the same and I look at when you know my husband was in a very serious car accident and and our children were very young and we no longer were permitted to be in those circles that we traveled before and that's essentially what you were saying but the new circle is so much better because what I see it's real people it's the people who have endured pain who have endured so many of the things that you shared and yet came out winners and had you not gone through that as your son said it's not a disability it's a possibility it all comes down to attitude so that was a long thing and I'm I apologize for taking that time I want you to know how deeply that affected me and I hope that other people are relating to what you said there well yes and um, and thank you Carol I do know your story and uh, it really touched me greatly with Chris Christopher we saw this play out in other ways um, how cool is this? You're the um, you're the guy on the basketball team that um, pretty much uh, allows the team to be as successful as they were. He uh, mm. he came home one day and he says, "Hey, Dad, you know the days of uh, fifth and sixth grade basketball where everybody plays are over." And now, um, my pals, remember what you said there, Carol. You hang out with the people that are the different ones. Well, that even included on the basketball team. How cool is this? Mm-hmm. So your son is the guy. It is what it is. When you have a son who's six foot five and plays the point guard, <laughs> they kind of get they kind of get their way, but they don't do it in a mean spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was told by so many coaches when you knock somebody down on the floor. You don't have to, when the ball moves to the other side, help them up. Well, that's 
that's symbolic of character, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Christopher's like, you know, looking at a coach, and if he had a little little uh, cloud above his head, he would say something like this, get over it, coach. This isn't a win at all cost. We're not going for the World Cup here. The ball's moved to the other side of the court. There's plenty of time to extend a hand, you know. That's kind of the way he is. Mm-hmm. But anyway, here's the cool part. He comes home and he says, we're doing well, aren't we, Dad? And I said, yeah, you're undefeated, you know, 15, 17 wins. Who knows what it was at the time. He said, I think my strategy's kind of working out. This is a seventh grader. He says, my, my objective, and he didn't use objective, but he said, what I want to do is I want to play so hard that my buddies can get in in the second half. So I talk about it in the book. I said, you know, as a dad, I thought my kid would be playing more than the disenfranchised kids that the coach gave him the speech. You know, thanks for being on the team. You're not going to play a lot this year. You're welcome to be on the team, uh, but you're going to sit on the bench for uh, probably most of the season. But we're up by significant amounts of uh, points. You'll get in a little bit. Christopher's like, okay, I get the picture, you know, the, uh, the the Neanderthal coach, you know, sending a message to a sixth, seventh grader, you know, you're not good enough, you know, I know that message. So he gets he gets the team up by uh, a lot of points, 20, 30 points by halftime. No exaggeration. Oh, my kid, you're kidding. Oh, no, no, this is all, it's all documented on film. And so his buddies are getting in, and who's right over there on the bench <laughs> the whole second half? It's like starting his own wave, you know, on the bench, you know, just really affirming those kids. And what we're dealing with is some kids that it's kind of bogus. You know, I don't mean to talk slang here, Carol, but it's kind of bogus because these are seventh graders. And while the handbook does say it's the competitive year, seventh and eighth grade, they haven't even reached their growth spurt yet. They don't even know enough. You know, I, I was always happy about those kids that you know, at least had a positive uh, experience because when they got to high school, some of them turned out to be great basketball players. And thank goodness they didn't walk away from that experience. But Christopher was on to something. And as a parent, my wife and I, as parents, my wife and I couldn't be any more proud, you know, of that, him recognizing that. And uh, who cares about my playing time? I know I'm a pretty good player. I got, I'm going to this college this week and for a recruiting uh-huh, game. Why am uh-huh. I... Why am I putzing around with worried about how many points I get in a grade school game, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, but, you know, those were the kids that were somewhat ostracized. They were a little dorky. Maybe the kid with asthma that got tired fast, right? And how sad is that? But they became his buddies, and you can have deeper conversations with those cats anyway. Let yeah. us go switch gears Sure. That life-changing day. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when it happens, and in a clinical setting, I talk about it in the book, you know, the big D word, and uh, the audience can put it together. They've heard me talk enough about what we were dealing with here with Christopher. The big D was never uh, never uttered uh, with a diagnosis. Hmm. So suddenly the lab results are in, and uh, there's this thing called the speech banana, where you, you're put in a silent little room, and you're asked to turn to sounds, and they just the uh, baby doesn't so those are hard when you go back on it you say boy I'd never want someone to sit in a room and and just hope their toddler would turn and they don't turn so emotionally you're at a low but uh, you know the room suddenly is filled with social workers uh, autologists people that are really experts in the Mm -hmm, field mm -hmm. so when you are there and there's suddenly five or six uh, professionals in the room, you know that uh, that there's help. 
and so from there it was the low obviously but uh, there was good times you know to come because this was a committed group and you could see it in their eyes as they wanted to help you you know the the issue there is is just it probably can't get much lower than when when you're told that your son your only son is profoundly deaf all of those concerns about the future just just ramble through your mind and you know, when we uh, look back on that, uh, it is a state of shock. Um, as I say to Christopher, it wasn't so much profound sadness. It was we know so little about what's going to be coming ahead of us and what are we going to do that we just were kind of uh, just stuck right there in that moment. Uh, when we talk with other people, Carol, and we... Um, we learn about what they've gone through. We never, ever get into, gosh, you know, that would be the worst. I'm only dealing with that. What we counter with, and we do this to this day, is there is a relative nature to whatever is being put upon somebody or happens to somebody based on what they've been through, what their support systems are, and what might seem very minor, you know, as a life-challenging issue could be actually much more pronounced than what we're, we were dealing with, given that relative nature of a lot of factors. So we uh, we were lucky in a lot of ways. New school for the deaf forming in that town that very month, uh, he was diagnosed. And uh, I had some educational insights as to um, the community there and what we could get done with hearing peers and getting some sign language uh, accomplished. The journey began for us to uh, really um, get things going. But it was about a decade and a half before we really um, could see that um, there was some um, some great things going to happen, you know, from an educational point of view, for sure. Because what you fret about in those early years, is, gosh, if you can't really talk and you can't read very well, it's going to be a hard time professionally. And uh and we had some big dreams for Christopher to do some great things professionally, especially what he, with what he was going through. Um, you know, the sign language community was very helpful, but the truth is, I mean, one-tenth of one percent of the world's population knows sign language. To that end, it can be very, uh, very challenging for the deaf. Those are our friends, you know. But it, it's, um, it gets to be a, a very lonely world in itself if they run into somebody that doesn't uh, sign. Uh, suddenly the paper comes out and, and uh, people are writing back and forth in a, kind of a scurrying format. But um, with uh, with Christopher, uh, it comes full circle quickly because he uh, was on a research team at Cornell where he and his research group have uh, developed some glasses in their uh, their early stage. But uh, the captioning does come in through and it's embedded in the glasses themselves, real time voice recognition so that when a person who is deaf has the glasses and a hearing person begins to talk to them, they could read it right in the glass lenses. That's what I'd like you to talk a little bit more about. If sure, you I'd be glass. happy to. Those are bulky glasses at this point in their infancy, but the real quest was to make sure that the real-time captioning wasn't delayed. They're being experimented with, Carol, in London for plays. There's nothing harder to watch is when the... Uh, deaf is using, they're using a captioning device or having it signed to them is a little better. The punchline occurs in the play and there's some laughter and cackling 
that's after the punchline. So they're not in sync with the play. Very, mm -hmm. very hard to watch. Mm -hmm. So um, Christopher knows that pain. He knows the pain of pretending. He knows the pr pain of pretending that you heard something and you smile politely at people and say, okay, sure, sure, sure. But you're, you're not in the conversation because it's hard when you're growing up. So he knows all of that, and so he gets aligned with a research team uh, at Cornell, and before, before that it was at the Rochester Institute of Technology in New York, where um, their efforts were to help with that and to uh, allow people that, um, that don't hear to be able to see that captioning. The, the beauty of it, too, is there's a huge segment of the population that loses their hearing later in life. And back to Christopher, how sensitive is he? He says, Dad, I never knew how to hear. I don't even know what it is. You know, I have a cochlear implant in my brain, which goes down to my brainstem that helps me a bit. But how about these people that they go their whole life, they know language, they know hearing, and suddenly they get later in life, and maybe even middle age for whatever reason, and they lose their hearing. They knew how to hear. That can be that can be very very depressing. Uh, perhaps these glasses uh, in the future will uh, will help out. So when you align yourself with Microsoft, they know those glasses. They they're working on them as well. They're trying to help uh, people in society uh, stay connected uh, with others. Does how much does the implant help? Well, the implant is um, is a game changer. Uh, we were in uh, early uh, Carol on an experimental trial at um, in those days it was. Uh, 17 months uh, was the experimental trial and it was uh, 24 months was the threshold. That's our tight quarters. The cochlea, the hearing organ in our uh, brain, is fully developed in the first trimester. Um, and uh, so the electrode array goes, uh, goes in through the cranium and goes down into that fluid metrium, the cochlea, and uh, puts vibrations in there that simulate sound. It's not necessarily a hit and miss. It's a very successful device. Uh, there's plenty of people that have lost their hearing and later in life and have had it restored to a uh, moderate level, uh, uh, moderate hearing loss, but they know the sounds. And uh, to those people, they knew speech. So it's, uh, it's an easier go. They just want to be able to hear better. And uh, so, yeah, very, very successful. It has caused, caused a bit of a conflict with the deaf community because, and we're with them on this, the, the people in the medical model have been trying to solve deafness for years, and, uh, and it's not been good outcomes. Uh, cochlear implant is not one of those. Uh, the deaf community has come around, but there still is some separation. Um, and, but for Christopher, uh, it worked uh, perfectly. And uh, so he hears... Uh, he hears uh, right within the, uh, uh, a little below normal in the speech range, uh, but uh, good enough where um, if it's not a noisy uh, you know, restaurant, for example, he's just fine. That's amazing. Absolutely incredible. Well, it is. It is. And you know what I like about it best? And it goes back to who he has become as a person. When he was at RIT in uh, New York, uh, Western New York, it's in Rochester. 10% of the population go to that university are deaf from all over the world. And when mm. we would go visit him, he's a talker. He can talk. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's like the old man. <laughs> and, and so so, so, so we go visit with him on campus, and the dude can't go 25 feet without running into somebody. And it's, a, again, it's a United Nations tour. It's the deaf people mm. signing to him. It's the people talking to him 
on and on and on and on and on. And he's very, very sophisticated in how he works within those groups because nobody, you know, if someone comes in to talk to him, remember this vividly, that's hearing, and they're talking to him, and he's also talking to a person. He's like, bam, he's on it instantaneously. As soon as they talk, he signs to the person that can't hear, and they're a signer. You know, it's all tight. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I wish you could say it was uh, that way for uh, for the, the camps, shall we say, the hearing and the deaf. There's still some divisions, unfortunately, but getting better. This has been enlightening, refreshing, motivating, mm-hmm. exciting. We did run a little past time. I hope that the audience was with us the whole time it was an incredible journey you took us on and i thank you so much for sharing from your heart some of it i know was not easy and others no we were moved <laughs> to tears today both you and i and so it was a good exactly. day wasn't it i totally agree and consequently we will touch many hearts as a result so again thank you and we look forward to having you back and if it's possible your son which would be a wonderful wonderful experience for all wouldn't that be something amen (laughs) well thank you for doing what you do uh your exemplary work and uh yeah you are helping so many people carol so congratulations uh i know you probably don't hear that enough but you should well i take it to heart and i really appreciate it and then those days when you get up and you wonder why you do what you do right yes yes (laughs) so again thank you and thank you for being on our show never ever give up hope thank you carol enjoy the day thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.